This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, speaking of wise men, uh, there's a few out there that we like to listen to, including, of course, what Warren Buffett has to say. That was really a focal for all of us in the financial world as he sent out his uh, shareholder letter over the weekend. So let's get into it with another wise man, Bill Smead, back with us, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management, $2.3 billion in assets under management, including Berkshire shares, I think, based on looking at the Bloomberg, just under 600,000 shares worth of Berkshire uh, Class B shares. Bill with us on the phone from Seattle. Hey, Bill, nice to have you here back on Bloomberg Radio. Um, The Berkshire letter, Warren Buffett's letter, what jumped out for you? Well, uh, I thought it was an excellent letter. I thought it was one of his best letters ever. And I thought the way that he taught the interaction between the five separate units of the company was uh, really really an eye-opener for a lot of people. And it made it, it it made the entity that they've created uh, a lot more compelling, right? It's not once upon a time Berkshire Hathaway was just the holding company for his closed-end stock picking, right? It was like a it, it was like a uh, a closed-ended fund, except it had some operating businesses that it owned, and people owned that stock because of his stock picking, and then. Uh, what he did was he he decided that there was a, a better opportunity once you got to be a larger size in owning whole businesses or eighty percent of businesses, uh, and then and and then have the smaller stakes be secondary. And and what this did was help people understand why you could earn good money by participating in such a large size entity because of the way it's so well organized. Well, and it, it's a great point, Bill, because I think he did really elucidate this for people who, candidly, I think get caught up just in this idea of like, buy what you know, you know, long-term hold and all those different things. And it's a lot more complicated. There's there's some pretty sophisticated, essentially, financial engineering, financial thought uh, behind all of this. I do want to ask you, because it's gotten so many headlines, uh, about what he said related to to Kraft Heinz. I think you think people have made, uh, just looking at some notes that that you sent over beforehand, people have made a little much uh, of this particular misfire uh, as it were although it sounds like he uh, he he buffett and berkshire have made some money already on this how should we read the the Kraft Heinz uh, issue here well uh, as an example we run a strategy that owns 26 stocks and uh, in at any given time we might have about 3% in cash so that means that we're putting a little over 3% in, in into each common stock so focusing on craft, and especially since their bad news is literally right, right before his letter comes out. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, it, 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 right? And, and uh, just the fact that he had a discussion on it in the letter is 
kind of amazing, right? Because he probably wrote the letter three or four weeks ago. Because you, you, you know, there's a lot of work that him and uh, Carol Loomis, the the, the yep. lady that helps mm-hmm. him, you know, uh, from Fortune magazine. Uh, so, so uh, it, it, when they fell 27 percent, Berkshire Hathaway lost. Uh, uh, 27% of a little less than 3% of their portfolio on that investment that day. Okay. Now it's no fun when you're when you're running a portfolio like us. You you don't want to lose 80 basis points. You know, right? Uh, absolutely. On a day the stock market went up, but in the scheme of 10 years, it's just a wiggle. I mean, it's just it's a tiny tiny wiggle, and that's. By the way, we actually are in the camp of believing. And by the way, if you wrote what Buffett wrote, he said, remember one of his key thoughts was, we do well buying businesses, but but this, our success is irregular timing, he called it. Yeah. Right. Irregular timing. And and that's why long duration, uh, it, there's great alpha still left in long duration because most people don't want to do long duration, and most people don't want to go through the irregular timing. Hey, listen. And, no, that's a good point. And he did, but he did say that they overpaid for crap, but he still thinks it's a wonderful business bill. I am curious, based on what you heard from the letter and subsequent comments that have come out from Mr. Buffett, you know, what's actionable? I mean, he talked about dipping into shares of Oracle, but then selling them. He's staying with Kraft Heinz. He'd buy more of Apple if the stock was cheaper. He also talked about this growing pile of cash. He'd love to do something, you know, and spend it on a giant acquisition, but not expecting any time soon for that to actually play out. 45 seconds. What from what you got from Buffett that is actionable? He obviously had... He obviously had an elephant that he had a chance to buy in the fourth quarter and didn't act on it, which caused him to not be as active buying stocks in December mm. as he would have been if he had not had a potential large acquisition on the hook. Uh, but actionable, he said uh, the most important quote in the whole piece has not been emphasized by hardly anybody. He said it, it's, it's very possible that a very excellent company, a very good company, Will have their stock so so high in price that that you will either have permanently uh, failed or fail for such a long time that it end up ruining it as an investment. Hmm. He said that I haven't heard anyone anywhere talk about that, okay. and we have been harping on that for a year and a half in our writing. Bill Smead over at Smead Capital Management. So as we were discussing, this story has really captured a lot of attention on Wall Street, in part because GE has been so much the focus really for the last year, two years. Yeah. Uh, and we know it's been the focus of Karen Yubelhart. She is Senior Industrials Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's here with Carol and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Karen, this kicks off first thing this morning, and it just keeps going. What jumped out at you? You know these companies better than anyone. Well, it wasn't a total, total surprise because they had been approached before on this on this property about a year ago. Uh, but the magnitude, I mean, $21 billion is real money. And now they can move the needle on the liability 
and uh, you know particularly the debt um and they're taking some pension not much but so it was the order of magnitude because they've been selling a lot of stuff but for three billion in in cash proceeds or two billion this is 21 billion so it can really make a difference so jason bring it up because it's just fascinating kind of uh the current ceo and where he used to be yeah. and who he sold this company to, i mean anyone right? anyone who's been following this at all knows where larry culp came from he came from danaher he just sold this company to Dan- to, to danaher, danaher. both <laughs> stocks are up what do we make of this well the first thing is danaher had expressed an interest a year ago so we knew danaher wanted it so it wasn't like larry went and you know pitched it and to so them. he was there at the so, time he was probably no least, he wasn't he was he, he was had left oh, he was that not makes working it even more interesting yeah. doesn't yeah. it interesting he, he had left danaher and yeah. was uh, a professor at harvard actually oh. um you know um an adjunct okay and doing other things and then he got brought into the ge board uh and then uh, the, the rest is history but so he had not been active but he owned danaher stock yeah. uh so and so does this raise eyebrows or does it, well, is it just sort of a case where this is why you hire this guy because right. he can make a phone call and get, get this deal done? done. Uh, you know, I, I, my feeling is it's, it's, kind, it's kind of mixed because A, we know they wanted the business. B, we know Larry needed cash and it was a lot more urgent than when Flannery said, no, I'm keeping that business because it's a great business. And I, I, I mean, I would say Larry would not have wanted to sell it, but he's in a, it's a different ball game here. Right. Um, you know, certainly it was an easy deal to make because they know each other. Um, and I will say the, the, they paid uh, 17 times with peers in, uh, at 18, 19 times. So I think why Danaher was up was they got a great complimentary fit, not a lot of overlap, but they got it a little cheap. Yeah. And I don't want to say cheap, but below, you know, certainly below peers. Um, on the other hand, GE doesn't have a strong hand. Yeah. So um, Yeah, they're not negotiating yeah. from a place yeah. of strength is for it sure. Like, is it likely that anybody's going to come in? You know, I haven't heard um uh you know new you know any rumblings of that but I think it is not out of the question this is a really good property mm-hmm. I don't know the overlaps with like a Thermo Fisher you know well, wait, and when you say it's a good property I do wonder about Karen as Larry Culp kind of takes a GE to its next era whatever that may be are they is this a business that they should have sold does it make sense or is this one of the businesses that they want to hold on to for the longer-term health of the company. I, I think in a perfect world, they would have liked to keep it. It grows high single digits. The um, piece they kept, their imaging business, grows 3 4%. It's, you know, margins are over 30%. Um, the core business they're keeping is 15 But their, their biggest issue right now is how am I going to pay down some of this debt and get my arms around it? A downgrade would have been terrible for them. True. They didn't have a lot of wiggle room for something wrong to happen. And this gave them some cushion. I think he just didn't really have – and then he looks, what else can I do with that's big? Baker Hughes, IPO of healthcare, yeah. and this ended up making more sense. And so some breathing room for him at this point yes. from investors' perspective, right? Yes. I mean, he still has to – you know, he still has that, that power problem yeah. did not go away. And right. it's a big, hard thing to fix. It's a multi-year thing. But at least he's got some time now. And is the know. perception that – okay, and, and Carol was alluding to this earlier, this guy's getting some stuff done. Like, he yes. does, he, he yes. is he is sort of presenting himself a little bit of swagger here, it feels like. And maybe that's 
kind of what GE needs. Well, it's interesting, yes, because, I mean, he is a solid guy. Everybody knew that. But this is a huge company, bigger than anything he's ever touched, with much bigger problems than Danaher ever had. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he is showing. And he wouldn't – the other thing that were people were frustrated about, he wouldn't tell us anything. Yeah. And he would say, I'm not going to. Until I have my arms around it, and you're <laughs> going to have to trust me. When I know it, I'll tell you. Yeah. And now he's going to give a meeting on the on the 14th where he's going to actually give us a true outlook and go deeper. So he's going to start yeah. talking. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he's talked a little on on ra- you know on radio and interviews, but that's where you pick up the little kernels. But he hasn't. They haven't presented anywhere. Yeah. They're going to present at a couple of conferences. So he's coming out now, it, which suggests to me he's got his arms around it. Well, he thinks investors yeah. are definitely coming out because the stock, as we mentioned, it was up as much as almost sixteen percent. Yeah. Still up more than eight percent. So certainly applauding the deal, Karen. Thank you as always, Karen Yubelhart. She's our senior industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I don't know if you've noticed, Jason, lately, uh, small cap stocks rallying big time this year. In fact, they're up, if you look at the Russell 2000, up more than 18% in 2019 versus nearly uh, roughly a 12% gain for the S&P 500. So we thought it made some sense to take a look at the small cap universe. Bryant Van Cronkite is portfolio manager at Wells Capital Management. They have $466 billion in assets under management overall. He joins us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. The Wells Fargo special small cap value fund, by the way, beating most of its peers over the past five years. Average annual return of more than 8%. Bryant, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the small cap space right now. Good afternoon. Um Well, we're seeing a lot of volatility that's triggered by macro events, and we continue to try and analyze what that means to us as stock pickers and what it means to the markets in general. And we're happily uh, now admitting that macro is probably having a bigger impact on the short-term volatility of stocks, probably due to greater transparency, um, a shorter news cycle. Uh, For example, the China news that broke this weekend, this morning, probably things you wouldn't have heard about five years ago. Um, You probably wouldn't have had a president tweeting about OPEC, you know, five years ago. And so those things are, are making the market move, and we have vehicles to, to trade on those things in the short term. But what we're really feeling is that long term, uh, nothing has changed. The way businesses are valued over a 12-month or longer time period comes back to cash flow and that valuation you have on that cash flow. And so we're focused on that, and we're taking advantage of it. When, when macro volatility uh, creates dislocations between the current stock price and the, and the true underlying value, we'll take advantage of that and buy and sell stocks accordingly. Well, there certainly was a lot of dislocation uh, toward the end of last year, as you alluded to. So what did you see, either in terms of specific names or some sectors, that gave you kind of a model or a window where you could do some buying? Yeah, we actually were very active in in the late second half of last year. And and in large part, we're able to do that because our portfolio provides a good amount of defensiveness uh, in in those kinds of markets. Our, Our companies have uniquely structured balance sheets by design that allow them to have a very defensive characteristic to their stock price action during pullbacks. Uh, And importantly, it allows them to weather that storm and actually play offense while the world's playing defense. But we did see some unique dislocations tied to um, what we thought were more fundamental issues in some cases um, in the small and mid-cap space as it relates to industrials and material sectors. There was a lot of inflationary pressures on what I would consider that raw material basket. And um, as you think about the industrials and materials companies, they're big consumers of those materials. And that impacts their cost of goods sold in the short run to a good degree. And it caused earnings to fall. It caused stock prices to fall. But in the long term, good companies 
uh, can demonstrate how good they are by raising prices to offset that. And so we ran into the fire, if you will, and add the positions within industrials and materials across a variety of different industries. So let's cut to the chase because I know our, our listeners certainly love to hear as uh, the specifics here. So give me an idea of what what names you guys have been adding to the space uh, when, it, I guess you said, from the second half of last year? And I do wonder if you were doing a bunch of buying in December as well. What were you buying? Sure. So a handful of names we were buying across a small and mid-cap space would be names like a Carlisle in the industrial um, conglomerate space where they have exposure to, to roofing products. Um, and Owens Corning, which is a bit of a hot topic right now with the exposure to wallboard um, and mm-hmm. and um, and roofing, and that stock is down off of earnings, and in our minds, very attractive right now. Um, Sealed Air, another good example in the material space, where the company is uh, a large manufacturer of um, packaging materials, plastics, and they use a lot of resins and a lot of oil-based products, and so their cost of goods sold went up while their pricing held flat in the short term. And so all those stocks are up nicely, uh, but all of them we think are still very attractive buys today. So if I look at something like Sealed Air, which is up 26% this year, we're looking at a forward-looking PE of about 16. I mean, is that it, though? Do you think it's kind of topped out? It's kind of grown into this, you know, this valuation has certainly picked up momentum as the stock has shot up. Um, Is it done? Do you now kind of back off? I think if you have a three-year view, you have the chance to understand what the business is doing to control their destiny, right? In the short term, the stock could fall here if, if uh, the macro um, environment slows down. But in the long term, you have a new management team who's in there investing their capital uh, in ways to become far more efficient on the manufacturing front that will help them reduce their working capital requirements, help them reduce their overall margins. They're investing in innovation, which will allow them to take market share, growing their top-line growth. Ultimately, what you're going to see here over the next three to five years is a much higher incremental margin or contribution margin off a dollar of sales from the investments they're making today. So in the short run, we bounce back, but in the long run, they're just beginning the process of showing you real free cash flow growth over the next three to five years. Brian, one name I wanted to ask you about that I I think you hold, and and it seems like there's a little bit of a a trend, at least in one of your portfolios, uh, Denny's is a a big holding. That stock is up about 12% so far uh, this year. You've got some other sort of similar names, Dine Brands, I believe, being another uh, there. What's the case specifically with those? Yeah, we, we, we find ourselves being drawn to the restaurant space right now, but specifically to franchise models. Mm. Our focus uh, through our process is understanding balance sheet flexibility. And when you have a franchise model, you are somewhat limited to the, to the daily changes in comps because you're paid a royalty off the top line. You don't need to worry about the, the cost structures as much of the business. And, and what that means if you're a lender, if you're giving money to these companies, you have far greater stability, far greater visibility, and thus you can allow more debt to be borrowed against a single dollar of cash flow. What that means to us is the ability for them to use that cash flow, that incremental leverage, in very creative ways to drive value creation. So whether it's buying back stock aggressively when your stock falls in, in December, whether it's re- reinvesting in, in advertising and marketing to try and gain share, whether it's investing in menu options like a, like a Wendy's would be doing, for example, those are all really value-additive things that these franchise models, we believe, are underappreciated in the current valuations. Well, and it's interesting. We actually spoke with Steve Joyce, uh, the CEO of Dine Brands, last week. I mean, this stock is just shot up. And David, uh, Jason and I have talked to him a couple of times. I mean, it's up 47% this year. And they keep trying to figure out different ways to kind of bring in um, their customer base, you know, in terms of kind of cool offerings and specials, seasonal things, and so on and so forth. What is it about Dine Brands that you find interesting? Sure. Well, originally we found it interesting because it just got 
absolutely destroyed as a stock when yeah. Applebee's was going through some trouble. So it's up yeah. nicely, but put it in context of the last two or three years, and it really has a lot of value still out of it to be created. What we like here is the, the stability of the IHOP brand we think is phenomenal, and that's, mm-hmm. that's a great cash flow producing machine for them. But the reinvigoration of Applebee's has a lot of legs to it. You're right. They're being very creative in how they, how they try to draw on the customer. We think that their, uh, their customer niche is still out there spending money and loves to spend on these little activities for families. Right? These are value-added uh, activities for families, um, which is probably taking share in our mind from apparel. Uh, yeah, as an example. interesting. So, yeah, I, I think this company is, is has the right leadership now, making the right choices around the menu, around uh, creativity, around um, experience that uh, allows them to, to continue to grow their cash flow uh, for the next several years. Very cool stuff. Um, thank you so much. Bryant Van Cronkite, he's Portfolio Manager at Wells Capital Management. Overall, the firm working uh, about $466 billion in assets under management. Uh, Brian joining us on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. All right, well, we always like to talk to CEOs on their debut days. Debutantes, I guess they are, in, <laughs> in some way. I've been spending too much time down south. Uh, Peter yeah. Aceto is here with us. He is CEO of CanTrust, based in Toronto, here in New York today, because the debut on the New York Stock Exchange. Peter, great to have you with Carol and myself here. So, feels like a big deal. But the latest step, you are a publicly traded company elsewhere. Why New York? Why now? Yeah, well, firstly, it's uh, an honor to be on. So thank you guys so much for having me. And this is a, just a very, very big day for Cantrust. So Cantrust, just context, Cantrust has been around for five years. We were started five years ago right. by pharmacists who uh, wanted to bring medicinal cannabis to uh, Canadians. We're uh, the fastest growing uh, medical cannabis uh, company in Canada. We, we have over 65,000 patients today. Um, and uh, our business is growing significantly on the recreational side. Um, uh, and we really have become a leader uh, in Canada and globally. Um, so as our investor base needs to broaden and more people in the U.S. and around the world, institutional and retail investors would like to participate in this international uh, growth uh, uh, business, uh, this was just a very logical step for, for CanTrust. Where's the bigger growth opportunity? Is it recreational? Is it medicinal? Well, that's a good question, and I think the answer is when right so if you think internationally which is what uh, you know Cantrust uh, is definitely learning its model and 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 be developed its expertise in the Canadian marketplace uh, but we're already in multiple countries around the world so I think if you look at the next five years uh, the huge opportunity we see is the medicinal market mm-hmm. internationally I think more locally in Canada and in other markets it is the recreational market some of the numbers we're hearing is 300 million it 300 uh, sorry billion in annual revenue in 2025 yeah. of which 65 percent will be would be medicinal but mm. we think the medicinal opportunity really is the more one that's right in front of us do you have to the ultimately and we've had a lot of different cannabis companies come in here is it a case that you will see a significant amount of consolidation as this industry grows as there's more um, approval of it and usage of it do you see whether you're buying other companies whether companies are buying you that's kind of where it's going to head head towards Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is this is this, such an exciting opportunity for people like me, and certainly for CanTrust uh, to be really in the first inning of a, a brand new industry that gets to start from scratch. And and cannabinoids and cannabis are going to be an ingredient in so many different verticals that impact all of our lives. So there's no doubt scale matters. There's no doubt capital matters.
customers and there's no doubt these are going to end up being very very large international companies and that's going to happen through consolidation for sure and so what are the you know it, it was not that long ago that there was a lot of pomp and circumstance about it going recreationally legal in Canada you know what are the lessons so far from a Canadian's perspective in this business specifically what are the, what are the biggest surprises that you've seen in terms of the the ramp up yeah i'd say maybe there's there's three i mean firstly what i found really interesting is uh, medical cannabis has been legal in Canada for 5 years yet people seem to only be aware when it became recreationally yeah. legal and it's right. Actually, significantly changed the medicinal market in terms of physicians and in terms of, 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 of our business as well. The second thing would be uh, supply demand. I mean, we've seen some of the supply demand issues. I mean, we are growing a, uh, a plant, and uh, Cantrust is certainly a leader when it comes to our our perpetual greenhouse uh, facility, which has six harvests a year, and um, we're producing a tremendous amount of very, very high-quality cannabis. But uh, the demand, as soon as it became legal, was significantly outstripped supply. So that's been very, very interesting as well. When you say, you know, you guys are, you said six harvests a year? Yeah, so we have or- a perpetual greenhouse where we can turn six crops per room in a year. Yeah. And, you, and you said high quality. Tell me about kind of the oversight of that to maintain, so that we know that there are true standards. I mean, because I do feel like we're figuring out our way there yeah. as well. I actually think that's one of, of the oversight. big international stories as well. And one of the reasons why a company like CanTrust and Canadian companies have a leadership position because because of the federal legality, um, we're regulated by Health Canada. Um, so they're the ones who regulate, you know, food, beverage, mm-hmm. medicine, all of those types of things. So actually, I came from the banking business, uh, which is significantly regulated in Canada. And this is this is this is regulated to at least that degree. So we uh, regular not as much as a pharmaceutical. Um, yeah, so it's difficult for me to make that comparison. Um, I can tell you that we we were audited, surprise audits on on a very very regular basis. Uh, quality compliance. I mean, we have significant resources making sure that the product that because pe- people are consuming this product, right. right? They're either inhaling it or they're eating it. They're using it for medicinal purposes, recreational purposes. Um, so quality is and, and compliance is, is is massively important. Thirty seconds. Why is the stock down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny, huh? Yeah, on, on such an exciting day. Well, here's the thing, right, is, um, look, uh, the, the broader acceptance of cannabis in the marketplace, to see that change over such a short period of time, it is really amazing. I think there's a lot more to do there. Uh, we actually looked, and the whole sector really is down today, uh, but the trading volumes today are significantly higher in our stock, which I think is the sign that we were really looking for, and one of the benefits of being listed on the New York Stock Exchange. All right, good stuff. Um, looking forward to hearing more because this industry just kind of fascinates us. Um, Peter Aceto, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Chief Executive Officer at CanTrust, based in Toronto, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio ticker uh, today. The ticker, excuse me, is CTST, making its debut on the New York Stock Exchange. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close on this first trading day of the week. Equity averages, yep, they're still up, but they're definitely way off their best levels of the session. Jack McIntyre is Portfolio Manager at Brandywine Global Investment Management, $70 billion in assets under management. Uh, Jack with us from Philadelphia. So, Jack, uh, a lot of big macro things going on this week, from Brexit mm-hmm. to U.S.-China trade to the U.S. president meeting with the head of North Korea. Uh, what is it that you are focusing on when it comes to investing in this environment? Okay, so the the list you just gave, the most important one by far, is the uh, U.S.-China trade uh, Mm -hmm. situation. And the fact that it looks like we're certainly making some progress, and let alone just China in general. I mean, China moves the needle on global growth, so we've got to kind of figure out the direction that China's going into, um, as opposed to Europe. Europe takes global growth. China gives it. The U.S. kind of provides it. So all things China are what we're focused on. And, Jack, if I have this right, you just got back from a a trip over Mm. to Australia, New Zealand. You were meeting with a lot of clients there. I have to think all of this trade talk is even more front of mind uh, for folks there than it is for for maybe some more domestically focused investors here in the United States. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, the U.S., we're not an economic island, um, but these guys – you know, we're exposed to it, but nothing like uh, Australia and New Zealand. They're on the front lines of trade. Um, and I just got back there Saturday. And, of course, everybody is, is very interested in sort of from a U.S. standpoint, what's our perspective on how this is going to play out? Um, the good news is that, you know, Trump, which I think he is sort of the state of the union, he kind of switched to campaign mode for 2020. Yeah. I think that's part of why we've seen a constructive move towards maybe getting a deal. It looks like things are lined up to get a deal. Uh, between the U.S. and China. So I'm stealing a, a phrase that I think is kind of um, very applicable to particularly from uh, anybody outside of, of sort of U.S. and China is that, you know, when the elephants fight, the mice lose. They get squashed. <laughs> right. um, you know, so it's well, well, you know, so the U.S. How, and China are the elephants. So how so. worried were the folks in Australia when you were there, especially when you had China limiting some of the coal imports yeah. uh, from Australia? Uh, it seemed to be a very strategic move, especially amid the U.S.-China trade talks last week? So, you know, Australia, New Zealand, these guys are in a unique position because, you know, economically, they're clearly aligned with China, but politically, they're aligned with the the West, with the U.S. in particular. So, yeah, China can retaliate. You know, China is not really going to be able to do that with the U.S., but they can do that with their uh, smaller trading partners. So, yeah, it's, um, I guess there's just, there's some consequences. So they've got to be sort of careful on, on how they how much they push back on, on China. And so just shifting gears a little bit, you know, one thing that I feel like has gotten a little bit lost in, in the shuffle today uh, in the headlines is the kind of will they, won't they, when will they on Brexit? And I do wonder how that figures into your investment thesis these days, especially just given all the uncertainty that's out there. So, yeah, I'm probably not alone. I have sort of Brexit fatigue yeah. um, because we just we talk about it. Uh, you know, you can't just – every headline is a little different. So, okay, so I think this is not as important uh, as sort of uh, June 2016, the referendum. I mean, that, that kind of was – it brought populism to the forefront. Um, I, I, if it's a hard Brexit, okay, there's going to be – volatility in the markets. You know, I don't want to be naive that you're going to see that. 
But I also want to emphasize, I go back to what I alluded to earlier, is that, you know, the U.S. and China dictate the, glo- the direction of the global economy. Europe is not going to do that. So um, it's if it's a hard Brexit, I, uh, I don't think it's going to take the global economy into a recession. Again, volatility in some markets, um, but I think they're going to actually uh, reach a deal or they're going to postpone it. So I'm, I'm not overly nervous uh, from a Brexit standpoint, but clearly watching how it unfolds. Jack, let's talk a little bit about emerging markets, because I know you like them uh, and mm-hmm. prefer them over U.S. equities. And I got just some stats to throw out at everybody. Uh, inflows to ETFs that buy stocks and bonds of developing nations more than tripled to $1.1 billion in the week ending February 22nd. That's according to our data here at Bloomberg. Uh, almost $400 million went to China and Hong Kong assets. So uh, we are definitely seeing uh, inflows into the emerging markets overall. What's your thinking here when you pick EM over developed markets or the U.S. specifically? Yeah, so there's a, a few things. One is, okay, so clearly, as you pointed out, people have sort of turned much more constructive on EM. I, I think from a sentiment standpoint, uh, it kind of reminds me of sort of post-Trump election where the soft data just went parabolic. The hard data took a long time to sort of catch up to that. I think it's similar EM sentiments, very bullish positioning is not quite as reflective of that. Uh, so I still think there's the valuation is still compelling from the EM standpoint. I don't want to sound like I'm looking through rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. There's still issues. We're positioning the portfolio to benefit from EM, EM transitioning from pricing in a very bad outcome to an okay outcome. I don't want to sound like things are off to the races. But, okay, so I need a couple of critical variables to play out. One is going to be the U.S. dollar. We need to see weakness in that. What's going to drive that? It's going to be the U.S. slowing down, but the rest of the world stabilizing from a growth standpoint. Uh, We need to see China continue to do more stimulus to get China stabilizing because, again, they've got a huge footprint on the global economy. And then we've got to see a positive resolution on U.S.-China trade. I think we're moving in that direction. The one area of uncertainty is that relative growth differential. Uh, If we see that, I think that's going to drive the U.S. dollar lower, and EMFX are the ones that are going to benefit the most in a weaker dollar environment. So you're betting on peace between the elephants, huh? Uh, we are. We are, at least for now. Uh, you know, again, I think it's a cold war between the elephants, but um, I think for the next six months or a year, uh, you can make some decent returns in, in EM assets. Well, the mice, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Be well, Jack. Take care. Okay, thanks. Jack McIntyre is Portfolio Manager at Brandywine Global Investment Management. They oversee about $70 billion. He joined us on the phone from Motown, Philly. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.